Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico. Based on a really cool interview I did in preparation for an upcoming class I'm teaching this semester, I thought it'd be cool to throw together a bit of a bonus episode to give our recent conversations about unions a little bit more depth. So this is a special one for all you true Magnificast fans out there. Though before we get right into it, I'd like to give a special thanks to all of our Patreon supporters out there. Um, the contributions that you make to the show have been really helpful and are letting Dean and I invest our time in some of the big ideas that go on in our show and trying to figure out ways we can leverage them into cool episodes or other projects. So thanks a lot. If you don't support our show on Patreon, you could. It's always possible. Uh, if you're interested in that, you should check out patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Um, if you subscribe, you get uh, access to our episodes a little bit early. You get to hear the Damnificast and any other weird podcast that we come up with. If supporting us on Patreon is just beyond your means, then that's totally fine. Uh, we get it. Capitalism is bad. That's what we're all about. But another way you can show your support is just writing us a nice iTunes review and help bump us up the iTunes algorithm. That's always extremely helpful and welcome. All right. On to the episode. Over the past few weeks, Dean and I have been getting into some of the big ideas and, you know, smaller ideas around unions and organized labor. One of the common factors in nearly all of the examples and all of the guests we've talked to is the necessity of unions to wrestle back some of that workers' autonomy in light of an increasingly precarious form of labor. To get into more of the details of unionizing workers who are on precarious, short-term contracts, I reached out to the newly formed freelance journalist union within the IWW. It's a pretty cool group that you should definitely check out on Twitter. Later in the episode, you'll hear from a representative from the IWW, FJU. That's the entire acronym. It's, uh, I don't know, pretty catchy, I guess. Though it's worth noting that he preferred to stay anonymous, which makes sense because freelance journalism is a rough gig and uh, you don't want to be blacklisted, I guess. So I'll just make up a good pseudonym for him here. For the sake of this podcast, we'll call him Jake, I guess. Why not? It's a great name that I just made up right now. In past episodes, we've talked about the ways union drives and organizing has been done to work out some kind of livable situation in the midst of short-term contract labor. For example, when we talked about labor and higher education and the union at Marquette, the entire point of a union was to find answers to questions caused by the precarity of their positions. Higher ed workers like at Marquette University and journalists like at Vice Canada have found that a straightforward legal union was their best bet in fighting for a better working situation for themselves. Though, as Tanara Yellen pointed out at the end of our interview last week, the, quote, gig nature of some jobs, like the food couriers at Fudora in Toronto, have an organizational challenge when it comes to organizing. To me, if you're doing work, then you're a worker. But a feature of current labor trends is to treat workers less like workers and as something that is far less than. Jake, a representative from the IWW Freelance Journalist Union that I mentioned earlier, explained to me that the gig economy transforms workers into what he calls independent contractors, which on the surface doesn't sound so bad. But when it comes to the rights and expectations of workers, the label independent contractor connotes something less than a worker. What's worth noting here is the way that the contemporary media ecosystem and capitalist logic that goes along with it has created a platform that takes hard-won labor victories from the past, like the eight-hour workday, weekends, sick time, employer-provided healthcare benefits, and completely destroys them, largely without anyone even raising a question about it. Freelance, gig workers, whatever we want to call them, 
rarely get the same types of benefits, compensation, and protection that um, you know what you'd call regular workers do, and that's pretty jacked up. The concentration of flexible and contract labor has created a problem for organizing workers that more institutional unions might have a hard time answering for. So think about it. If you're working based on a short-term independent contract, that means you don't have the opportunity to connect with your colleagues and your fellow workers. You don't go to an office. You work from you know wherever and whenever. There's no place or time for you to build solidarity, let alone unionize your workplace. The real trick of this mode of labor is that it keeps workers solitary and individuated. Well, you don't have to take my word for it. To describe exactly the difficulty of working in the gig economy, here's my contact Jake from the IWW Freelance Journalist Union explaining how the gig economy has restructured journalism for freelance journalists. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we're talking in August of 2019. Um, if you've been paying attention to the headlines in uh, the media industry, you know that uh, already this year, something like 3,000 uh, full-time journalists have lost their job, um, which is really indicating, uh, you know, expressing the instability of the industry at large. <clears throat> Obviously, news continues, so without these 3,000 full-timers to do that work, that work falls into the laps of freelancers who publishers are more and more relying on to produce the content that they crank out on a minute-by-minute -minute basis. While this creates greater opportunities for freelance journalists, um, anyone who's worked as a freelance journalist also knows that the conditions under which we're expected to work are extremely exploitative. Um, many times we're often doing the same kind of work that full-time journalists would be doing, but we receive none of the benefits. We don't receive commensurate payment. Um, uh, and there's issues more particular to being freelance in terms of we don't receive our payments on time. Uh, many times the contracts that we're forced to sign are extremely exploitative in terms of the rights that they're expecting us to give away to publishers. Um, we've heard um, sort of insane clauses like publishers wanting rights to our work in perpetuity throughout the universe, like really just, you know, insane stuff. That's sort of where freelancers are in the industry. From this explanation, you can see how freelance journalists are used to plug the holes at different institutions. They're stopgaps. They end up doing the same kind of work as full-time or part-time workers, but they're treated and compensated very differently. When it comes to this type of labor, it's important to focus on how employers might use the shortness of contracts and a huge labor pool to their own advantage. It's a setup that makes individual workers disposable and precarious. The prevailing logic amongst publishers is, what are you going to do about it, right? Like, I'm going to offer you cut rates, I'm going to pay you... Uh, months late. I'm not going to give you any benefits. Um, I'm going to force you to sign exploitative contracts. And what can you do about it? You're just one person. Uh, if you don't want to do this work, I'll find the next person in line to do it. I don't really need you particularly. Um, so that's just sort of where freelancers are at in like, you know, in, in the industry today. So this all sounds pretty bad. But the question is, then why don't freelancers just call up a union that represents journalists and you know, get it figured out. After all, that's what the folks at Vice did. Well, because they're freelance workers, it's a bit more complicated than that. We've talked about unions in past episodes, but let me break it down one more time. So say you work at a newspaper or a magazine, and you want to start a union there. You talk with your colleagues and try to get other folks interested in the idea too. And, you know, maybe they are after a bit. 
Once you've gained some interest in a union drive, you call in a union and they help you have a union vote at your workplace. If the vote succeeds, then they bring your petition to the National Labor Review Board and boom, you're a union. I mean, kind of. It's a little more complicated than that, but just bear with me. After that, you work with the union organizers and negotiators to write a contract that gives you everything you and your coworkers want. Then you'll work it all out with your boss and you more or less win. Like I said, that's overly simplistic. It's definitely a bumpy road for sure. But basically, that's the big idea behind a union. Though from the conversation so far, you're probably already seeing what freelancers are up against. They don't go to an office. They aren't directly involved with their coworkers. That makes it extremely difficult to do things like hold a vote. But that doesn't mean that there's no hope for freelancers. Here's Jack again with some more specifics about freelancers and unions. How do you get in touch with each other? How do you then, once you've gotten in touch with each other, figure out a mechanism to organize by when the sort of straightforward option of holding an election and using the government to basically um, enforce your collective bargaining uh, when that's not available to you? Like Jake said, the usual means of organizing aren't readily available to freelancers. So what do you do? Well, not every union is the same. The IWW, for example, or the Industrial Workers of the World, are definitely not the same. They have a whole plan to work around the lack of legal rights for independent contractors. Here's Jack again with more on the IWW. It's helpful that the Freelance Journalists Union is allied with the Industrial Workers of the World. Um, the IWW is an international uh, democratic union for all workers. Um, but what's particularly special about it is its model of unionizing as opposed to the business union or like service union that I mentioned before, the IWW's model is referred to as a solidarity union. So rather than relying on any of these like legalistic mechanisms um, offered by the government, like NLRB elections, instead of relying on that, we rely on solidarity and collective direct action, basically bringing workers together to identify their own common interests. And then uh, those workers themselves using their collective power to pressure uh the employer to do the right thing. Uh, that sounds extremely abstract, but just to give you like a concrete example, um, recently the Freelance Journalist Union was contacted by a number of freelance journalists who were complaining about uh, Vox Media. You know, they own a bunch of websites like Eater and Rack and Polygon and um, their, you know, their uh, Vox as well. Um, but we were approached by a number of freelancers for Vox complaining about a new provision that Vox wanted to add to its freelancer contract, which would bar them from discussing rates openly. Um, this is a big deal because the way freelance work is obtained is either through freelancers um, soliciting editors, basically sending a pitch idea to an editor saying, uh, this is the story I want to cover. This is how I would cover it. Um, would you be interested? Um, and that editor is saying like, yes, no, uh, how much would you want for it? Or the editor just putting out a price like, well, I'll give you $500 for this. I'll give you $300 or whatever. Um, but that's done on like an individual by individual basis. So if we are not able as freelancers to discuss how much we're getting paid amongst ourselves from different publications, it's very easy for those publications to then turn around and um, basically underpay some of us. Um, this is obviously what happens frequently in full-time employment where women and people of color are just being systematically underpaid. Um, there's no reason to assume that's not also happening in freelance journalism. Um, to the best of our understanding through surveys and our own experience, this is happening in freelance journalism to women and people of color. They are being underpaid um, in respect to like their male white counterparts. So Box came up with this uh, provision trying to prevent writers from discussing 
uh, their rates openly. We received a lot of complaints and in turn, we decided to uh, launch a sort of like very ad hoc direct action campaign where we over social media encouraged Vox contributors to send us their rates. We would anonymize them and then we would publish them um, on social media. Uh, this like very quickly sort of spread like wildfire. Um, like it went viral. We had like, a, I think a hundred different journalists contributed rates that we then anonymized and published. Um, and really what it did was like, it both brought attention to the issue of discussing rates openly um, for the industry and why that's important for freelance journalists, but it also put an immense amount of pressure on Box specifically to retract this uh, this provision from their freelancer contract. Um, this happened back in July, and we just heard, I think last week in August, um, that Box did actually strip this provision out. So yeah, it's our first success. We were really, really thrilled about it, especially because like I mentioned, this was very ad hoc. But this is the sort of model of unionizing that we're going after. It's not relying on the government. It's not going through an election. It's not jumping through all these legal loopholes. That's not to say we won't use legal means when they're available to us. We'll, of course, consider every tactic that is available to us. But this model of solidarity and collective direct action, that is like freelance journalists identifying their common interests and working together to put pressure on their employers um, to basically do the right thing, right? We're not asking for anything outrageous. We're asking for what we need to survive and continue doing the work that is necessary uh, to the news industry's survival. So maybe you're a freelancer yourself, or maybe you're thinking about getting into journalism and freelancing seems like the best avenue. Cool, you should do that. But these issues that Jake is mentioning will definitely affect your life. So rather than remaining solitary, this is your chance to join that one big union. If you want to join the IWWFJU, here's Jake with how to do it. Yeah, so I mean, we really advocate that people reach out to us directly uh, via email at freelancejournalists at IWW.org. Um, we do have a website, uh, freelancejournalistunion.org, which has some information on it. Um, it has like a frequently asked questions section, which might be super helpful. Um, I think the main thing for like students to know is like, while you can sort of formally join and pay dues every month, like we understand that as uh, freelance journalists, it's quite precarious out there. So uh, paying dues is not like, uh, it's not required. Like all dues are voluntary. So it's basically members who feel like they can make that financial commitment each month. Uh, they're welcome to do so. Um, students, uh, workers who are precarious who feel like they can't do that, they're also welcome to join our organizing. This isn't a question of money. This is a question of, like I mentioned, solidarity and collective direct action. Um, so if students want to get in touch with us, uh, freelance journalists at IWW.org is the best way. Um, when we receive requests through that channel, we typically try to schedule one-on-one -on -one conversations with some of our organizers, uh, offer a more like sort of personal approach to discussing like what are the problems in the industry, what have students seen as problems in the industry, what are they scared about, um, how do they think we can work together? Because I mentioned like we are a democratic union, we take that very seriously. We do want to hear about the problems that other people are having and the solutions that they think might solve them. Um, we're not here to tell people what to do or how to do this. Um, this is a collective effort, so everyone's voice matters, everyone's opinion matters, and like students are welcome. Like you know, we we understand freelance journalists the term as in the widest possible sense. If you freelance once, you're a freelance journalist. If you tr if you intend on freelancing, you know you're also welcome to organize with us.
All right, so freelancers, get out there and join that one big union. The IWWFJU fills an important spot in the labor landscape of 2019, and I think they're setting a precedent that many more freelance and gig workers will have to think about and maybe adopt as their own strategy. There's a lot we can say about the IWWFJU as a tactic for achieving the dignity and necessary rights of workers. Though what I find particularly helpful is that their strategy isn't something new. It's based on a relatively old strategy planned out by one of the IWW's founding members, Father Thomas Haggerty. If you're not directly familiar with him, you can skip back in our playlist and find an episode Dean and I did on uh, Father Haggerty together. After the founding of the IWW, Father Haggerty drew up a helpful illustration called Haggerty's Wheel. The chart explained the role the IWW would fill in the labor movement. The basic idea of Haggerty's Wheel showed how unions in diverse industries could be linked by converging on a single point that would help bolster and defend weaker industrial branches. This is some of what Jake was talking about when he said the IWW is a solidarity union. While trade unions have had a lot of victories, it seems like the IWW is flexible enough in its organization and militant enough in its politics to organize gig workers into a force to be reckoned with. New technology always revolutionizes the relationship workers have with their labor. The changes that digital media have brought to labor have been studied and elaborated on by a lot of really great scholars out there. Though through all of their observations, one thing that really stands out is the way that digital media tends to unchain workers from the usual symbols of the workplace tedium. For example, you can work from anywhere as long as it has an internet connection. Or you can work any time of the day you'd like. The 9 to 5 is kind of out the window. But when digital media frees workers from the offices and the 8-hour workday, it does integrate them into a whole different regime of time and space. Your fellow workers evaporate into the ether and are represented to you as names in a group chat. Your workday, rather than becoming more convenient, becomes an always-on kind of arrangement. You might be away from your office, but you're only ever one intrusive email away from being at work. So as digital media alienates us from our own labor and from our own coworkers, creative organizing strategies like that of the IWWFJU are a strong tool in the fight for a better life for workers. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash The Magnificast. You can also just give us one of those good iTunes reviews. Uh, we'd really appreciate that a ton. Shout out to the IWWFJU for doing a, a very short notice interview with me. And um, yeah, I don't know. Get in that one big union, y'all. See you next week. <laughs>